If you have been with us for the first light service in recent weeks, you know that we've been studying the book of Joshua. And last Sunday, we began our lesson making the most of what you have been given. And we talked about the fact that every Christian is given the privilege of prayer, and we ought to use that to the best of our ability. Today, we're going to take a look at the account of a man's life given by Chuck Swindoll in his book, Living on the Ragged Edge. The man's name is Tom Sullivan. He is a world-class athlete. He earned a degree at Harvard. He's a musician, an author, sports enthusiast. He runs every day on the beach. He swims, he skydives, has 37 jumps to his credit. He shoots in the mid-80s golf. He runs marathons and triathlons. He's spoken to over 5,000 corporations as a motivational speaker, but he is blind. When he was a baby, premature baby, too much oxygen was given to him, and he was blind. But he says it's the disadvantage that you have that makes you different from other people, and people are not looking for similarity. They're looking for differences. So when he was a little boy, he was out in the backyard, and he heard a crack next door, and it was a baseball being hit by a bat. And he wondered what that was. So he climbed over the fence and asked what they were doing, and they said, we're playing a game. And he decided that he wanted to play that game as well. So he got a stick and some rocks, and he started trying to hit the ball. He didn't know where to hit it, so he put a little transistor radio down on the stump, and he would try to hit it toward the radio, toward the sound. And then he would try to throw a rock or a ball toward the sound. He told his dad, I want to play baseball. His dad said, oh, really? Uh, which position would you like to play? I'd like to be the pitcher. Uh, yeah, right, son, sure. So dad talked to the guy managing the little league and got him a spot on the team. And you can imagine, uh, Tom says, this little frightened nine-year-old boy at the plate ready to have the ball thrown at him by a blind kid on the mound. <laughs> he says after he knocked out several boys, he decided to get out of baseball which probably pleased his opponents, but then he took up some other sports, and we'll get a word of his testimony here. This is Tom. I was beginning to learn that every person in the world has a handicap, and that every person in the world can turn their disadvantages into advantages. And that's what this second half is about, turning, turning on the light turning disadvantages into advantages. I got involved in school in wrestling. It's a contact sport. You grab the other person, you throw them on the ground, and you try to kill them. I lost the first 16 matches in 2 minutes and 43 seconds altogether. <laughs> I mean, it was an ugly thing. The referee would blow the whistle, and it would be, now let's beat up the blind person. In the 17th match, the coach we had from Boston, who was really sarcastic, said, listen, Sullivan, he said, Go out and do the best job you can, will you? And try not to be dead. Real positive coaching. I lost that match, everybody, but I realized in that experience that all I could do was the best job possible. How about that? The best job possible. And if you do that, wonderful things start to happen. And I began to win. I was blessed to win the next 187 in a row and the U.S. Nationals... I was in the World Championships and I'm in their Wrestling Hall of Fame. But that's not why I'm telling you the story. I want you to get the idea of disadvantage into advantage. These eyes of mine are plastic, prosthetic. 
I had glaucoma, and they removed them. And so you take them out at night like contacts, and you wash them off, and you put them back in. So I was competing against a kid from the Soviet Union. The score was 11 to 3. The Russian was ahead. Every time he knocked me down, it got more and more painful. So I did the only thing I thought made sense under the circumstances. I just reached up and popped out one little suckers. <laughs> and dropped it on the mat and said, stop, stop. He said, why? I said, I lost my eye. And the kid looked down and saw it and went, Bleh. In the World Games record book, it says Sullivan over Asmanoff by default. And that's turning disadvantage into advantage. A good word of testimony there of making the most of what you have been given or of what has been taken away. Grace for your place. Last week we talked about the fact that in every seat, in every pew, there is one person and the potential for two more. There's the person that you are right now and the person that you're going to become. And you can either become the person who wants to make the most of all God has given you, utilizing these special gifts that he gives, plus those that are common to all of us. Or you could be the person who, for whatever reason, fails to utilize what God has given and comes up lacking at the end, hoping that you even have citizenship in the kingdom. Sometimes the way we live our lives would be a testimony as to our citizenship. In fact, you should say most of the time that would be the case. Now, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, makes a universal offer to everyone here, to everyone who hears the gospel. Here it is, John 7, 37. Now, on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his inmost being shall flow rivers of living water. Now we understand that John also says no one comes to Christ unless the Father who sent him draws that person. But it's a universal offer. Do you want to come to Christ? Do you want all he has for you? Then you come as the Holy Spirit works in your heart. Now some would say, well... What do you get when you come to Christ? You get eternal life, but that's just kind of pie in the sky by and by. That's not such a big deal. And maybe I will get straight with God before I die. After all, I'm only 35 years old. But my question is, what do you get when you have come to Christ? What do you get today? What do you get on that day that you commit your life to Him? John 10.10, the thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy, Satan being the thief. I have come, says Christ, that they might have life and that they might have it abundantly. So we get something besides a cosmic fire insurance policy, at least in the opinion of some. We get an abundant life as well as an eternal life, the abundant life today. What in the world is the abundant life? Well, it is a healthy life. It is a wealthy life. It is a prosperous life. It is a purposeful life. It is a satisfying life. Now, be sure to put the word spiritual before life in each category. It is a healthy spiritual life. If you're counting on physical and material uh, financial blessing and health, you might get that, 
But you might not. There's not an ironclad guarantee on that, but you have known, as well as I, people who didn't have physical health who had great blessings in the spiritual category because it drew them closer to God. The other problem is that puts you in a precarious position if that's what you're counting on because those things can be taken away from you, even as they were from Job in the Scripture. But if it's the spiritual, they can't touch it because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. They can't touch you unless God has some higher purpose, as he did in Job's case, or unless you invite trouble through some foothold in your life that you have opened up for the enemy to come in. But God is even in control of that. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And he who is greater has something to say about your spiritual well-being as well as your physical. In fact, he has everything to say about your spiritual well-being. He says it all. Jeremiah 29, 11 in the Old Testament, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. He's speaking to his people in the Old Testament. I think he speaks the same way to us in the New Testament. Now, I need to remind you that if you do follow God's ways, you may very well prosper materially and financially, even as we have in the United States. On this quarter, it says, in God we trust. It probably ought to say, in God we used to trust. But because of our trust in God and following His ways, America became the great nation that it is. But when prosperity comes, what do we have to do? We have to be very careful that we keep our eyes on the giver of the gifts and not on the gifts. Because if we get off on the gifts, we're going to get into some serious problems as we see in our nation now. Well, back to the abundant life. So what do you get besides the forgiveness of sin, relief from a burden of guilt, A new Father, the mind of Christ, the Holy Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit, wisdom, discernment, grace, insight, awareness of right and wrong, ability to choose the right, a new attitude, a host of brothers and sisters in a new family, and more like contentment in Christ. And besides all that, we get a future and a hope according to God's plans for us. Many are the blessings that God gives But as we've learned in study of the book of Joshua, we have to possess our possessions. We've got to claim those blessings. We've got to take those promises, hold them up, ask God to fulfill them personally in our lives and that of our family and in our church. In order to enjoy the fullness of the abundant life, you have to exert yourself. You have to put forth some effort. God works in us, but we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Do you have a desire this morning to be the person who would be all that you could possibly become with the gifts that God has given you? Utilizing the grace for your place in life, living this abundant life, investing your gifts to the fullest. Joshua and Caleb were two guys like that. We have been studying what they were all about. Caleb had a different spirit 
and served God wholly. He was committed, as was Joshua, to the task. Sometimes we might think that it would have been easier to serve God back in Bible times when all kinds of amazing miracles were taking place. But I'll ask you a question. Here's the question. Had you rather be a lumberjack in the days before chainsaws and bulldozers, or had you rather be a soldier in the days before air cover, missiles, and drones? Now, the tribe of Ephraim had some decisions to make, and we'll get back to the answer of that question. Joshua 18.1. Then the whole congregation of the sons of Israel assembled themselves at Shiloh and set up the tent of meeting there, and the land was subdued before them. Shiloh was, Shiloh was the site chosen in the promised land at which to erect the tabernacle. And God had it all figured out. It was located in a central location. And then the tribes were assigned by lot that God controlled. They were assigned to their places all around that area where everybody could easily get to the tabernacle where they worshiped God. It would be kind of like we have our church here and all of you live on Schmidzinski Road and right out here on the other side of our house and everybody's right there where they don't have to travel too far. So that was a good deal. Now we may or may not have been given property, but we as Christians have been given something much greater than that. It's the gift of Christ. And we are given grace that would measure up to the gift that we've been given. And I'm thinking now about special gifts. Some people have been given a great gift to preach a great sermon. And you can take that gift and you can utilize it to the fullest, even as we listen to Alistair Begg in the first hour there. Here's the verse from the New Testament. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Grace being the power and motivation to do God's will, to do what He's given you the gift to do. This is grace to match your place, not someone else's place. This is grace for your race that God has marked out for you, not someone else's race, as we noted last week. Now we come to the problem with preeminence. And what is the problem with preeminence? Well, usually it's pride. And I think we might see that on the part of the tribe of Ephraim. We'll take a look. I want to read once again the verses that we've already looked at. Joshua 17, beginning in verse 14, Then the children of Joseph spoke to Joshua, saying, Why have you given us only one lot and one share to inherit? Since we are a great people, insomuch as the Lord has blessed us until now. So Joshua answered them, I'm not sure what tone with which he spoke this. If you are such a great people, maybe, then go up to the forest country and clear a place for yourself. And there in the land of the Perizzites, uh, Perizzites and the giants, the Rephim, since the mountains of Ephraim are too confined for you. But the children of Joseph, that would be Ephraim, Manasseh, said, the mountain country is not enough for us. And all the Canaanites who dwell there in the land of the valley have chariots of iron both those who are of Beth Shean and its towns and those who are of the valley of Jezreel. And Joshua spoke to the house of Joseph, to Ephraim and Manasseh, saying, You are a great people and have great power. You shall have not only one lot, 
but the mountain country shall be yours. Although it's wooded, you shall cut it down, and its farthest extent shall be yours, for you shall drive out the Canaanites, though they have iron chariots and are strong. Now the spokesman from the tribe of Ephraim had a complaint. They came to Joshua. Ephraim and Manasseh, you remember, were the sons of Joseph, born down in Egypt. Joseph was a great tribe in Israel. You remember, Joseph was not only his dad's favorite boy, but he was the big man in Egypt during the years of the famine. And you remember when Joseph brought his two sons to their grandfather Jacob to be blessed, that he had them lined up in order for Manasseh to be on the Jacob's right hand, but Jacob crossed his hands. Why do you think he did that? Well, it was in God's providence, but he gave the blessing to Ephraim the younger. You know what I'm thinking? Do you remember Jacob's experience getting the blessing? Well, maybe he had a little favor to show the younger. At any rate, Ephraim got the blessing. Not only that, Joshua was from the tribe of Ephraim. And you might uh, consider that this tribe is beginning to think of themselves as maybe the preeminent tribe in Israel. But when you start thinking that you have a reason to be proud, you might just become proud. And it looks like that's what's happening here. You would never catch the Apostle Paul saying anything like that. Paul says, I am the chief of sinners in 1 Timothy 1.15 and less than the least of all the saints in Ephesians 3.8. Now they might have had some justification for for feeling that way. But the Bible says in Proverbs 27, let another man praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger and not your own lips. What about Ephraim's claim? Was it legitimate? They declared they had only been given one lot. But actually, the tribe of Joseph was given three. There was the lot that went to Ephraim. They were talking about was not big enough for them. There was a lot on the east side of the Jordan River that went to the half-tribe of Manasseh. And then there was another lot on the west side of the river that was given to Manasseh in the Promised Land. So they were actually three. Now, we don't hear much about Joseph anymore because his two sons take up the names of the tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh. But wait a minute, that would make 13 tribes. Joseph eliminated, adding in two. Oh, but you remember the Levites didn't get any territory. They were stationed all around the land to help out with the uh, service at the tabernacle and to encourage the people, and they didn't have property. But they were given property on which to have their crops and their herds, and that was in somebody else's territory. So we still have the 12 tribes. Now, we see in the Bible that proud people sometimes have a tendency to complain. King Ahab complained about the fact that his neighbor Naboth would not sell his family's vineyard. Haman complained about the fact that Mordecai would not bow down to him. King Nebuchadnezzar complained about the fact that not everyone in the land would bow down to this big golden idol that he had fashioned. Pride carried a high price for those men. 
The short epistle of Jude describes some people who have crept into the church who were given to pride and gave evidence to it by grumbling. Jude 16, these are grumblers, complainers, following after their own sinful desires. They are loud mouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. They were prone to pride, and the pride resulted in protests. Now that word complainers in Jude 16 is a compound word. It comes from two Greek words, memphomai, to find fault, and moira, one's lot or one's inheritance or fate. The compound word means blamers of their lot, complaining of one's lot or discontented. The men of Ephraim found fault with their land. They felt they were just too big for the small plot that had been assigned to them. Later on, the men of Ephraim had the same problem of complaining. They thought that they didn't get treated in the way they should have been treated because of who they were. Later in the book of Judges, then the men of Ephraim said to him, that was Gideon, who with the Lord's help had just defeated 135,000 Midianites with only 300 men, some pitchers, torches, ram's horns, trumpets, And now the men of Ephraim said to him, What is this thing you've done to us, not calling us when you went to fight against Midian? And they contended with him vigorously. Fortunately, Gideon gave them a wide answer. But then another judge, Judges 12.1, Then the men of Ephraim were summoned, and they crossed to Zaphon and said to Jephthah, Why did you cross over to fight against the sons of Ammon without calling us to go with you? We're going to burn your house down. These guys were pretty volatile, because I think they didn't get treated the way they thought they should have been treated. Now the Ephraimites maybe had a tendency toward pride because of their connections. They were insiders. They had crossed the Jordan. They had lived through the war years. They had descended from the tribe of Joseph, as we said, who was very important in Israel's history. And they had received the blessing from their grandfather, Jacob. And Joshua was even from the tribe of Ephraim. So they were thinking, we're probably going to get favorite son status, just like we always have, when they went to Joshua with their request. But Joshua was no respecter of persons. And you heard what he told them. You guys can do some things that will make the property that you have to be suitable for your purposes. Have you ever known anyone who felt a little bit proud because of their connections or their associations? This could happen to most any group of people. It could happen to us. Here is a person or a church or an organization that is teaching principles from the Bible. Principles like memorize scripture and meditate upon it. And it sounds pretty good because it is good. It's right from the scripture. And some of the teachings uh, sound new because they were kind of dusted off and they've been forgotten, maybe due to cultural pressures and prejudices. But now they're coming out again and folks hear what they're saying and they say, wow, that looks pretty good. That sounds pretty good. And then maybe they see some of the young people in families who are associated with that particular church 
and they're following some of those principles and living for the Lord, and they say, you know, that looks pretty good to me. I think we could take those same principles, get connected with this church or this organization, and perhaps the same thing would be true in our family. Now, be careful, because when a situation like that happens, and it could happen to us, what do we begin to think about other people who are not a part of the organization or the church? We tend to kind of say, well, yeah, those guys are Christians, but we're the A-team. And if you really want to be on the A-team, you need to become affiliated with our group. But fast forward about a decade. Now there is a 16-year-old son. He can't stand the principles. He meditates on video games. He's filled with anger and rage and malice and bad language and all kinds of things. It would be easy to think that the principles just didn't work. I mean, look at the outcome here. And he hates that organization or that church or whatever his parents put him through. In fact, he thinks his parents have ruined his life because they made him to be a principled person or they tried to do that. Well, the parents are distraught and the parents say, you know, those principles just didn't work. And you know what? They are exactly right. Principles don't work. Programs don't work. Formulas don't work. We've said it before, it's God who works. And God works according to His ways. And God works in us as we follow His ways. And we have to be careful that we're not just doing this thing, but we're doing it in the way that God has said do it. With my heart turned toward my son and his heart turned toward his dad and there is the listening ear and there are some attitudes and some the spirit of the home that would be very important what happened in that home some things must have been missing here's a general principle from proverbs with regard to what we're talking about train up a child in the way he should go and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, I know this verse has been interpreted in many ways all over the map. But the usual way we understand that is if you bring up a child in the way, uh, ways of the Lord, when he gets older, he's not going to depart from it. How many people have ever seen this proverb fail to work? Or should we say, how many times have you seen that proverb fail to work? At least that's what it looks like. Well, here's a quote from 1952, Andrew Murray, The Children for Christ. There have been so many failures in religious training that a spirit of doubt has grown up as to whether a principle like this can be regarded as holding good universally. With such doubt, we undermine God's covenant. Let us rather believe that the failure was owing to man's fault. Either the parent did not make clear the way in which the child should go, or the training in that way was not what God's Word had ordered it to be. Andrew Murray. Now the Bible is filled with men who trusted in the program to work, even though they weren't doing it God's way. You could think of King Saul who wanted God to bless his offering instead of waiting for Samuel to get there to offer it as the priest. 
You could think of King Uzziah who wanted God to accept his offering of incense in the temple instead of the priests. You could think of King David who wanted God to bless his method of transporting the ark when God had a different way of doing that. Now, if you had said to any one of those men, whoa, 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 you can't do it that way. You've got to do it this way. What do you think their response might have been? God said you've got to do it this way. Well, they might have said, whoa, you're too legalistic. We can do it this way. Well, if God has said it, we better pay attention to that. In Ephesians 6, God admonished fathers to bring up children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord the training and instruction of the Lord. Now, it's easy to get off on one or the other, the padilla or the nuthesia. And maybe that's what happened in that home that we were considering. Maybe there was plenty of the how at that house, how we do things in the home, including the structure, the rules, the regulations, the forming of good habits, the obedience to the commandments, and the use of the rod of correction. But maybe at the same time, there was a weakness in learning the why, the instruction part. We do these things because, and there's the internal inspiration and the motivation and the importance of a good attitude and the desires of a young person, loving God and loving others, communicating to the heart. If the child doesn't learn the why, he'll bail out later when he gets a chance. Or it could have been the other way around. Here's a child who knows the Bible. He knows the right thing to do. He's supposed to do it. But he never was made to do it. The rod of correction was non-existent. One way or the other, the parent didn't make clear the way in which the child should go. Or the training in that way was not what God's Word ordered it to be. Now, we are all fallible as parents. And nobody applies God's Word perfectly. So when anything good happens, we know it's God's grace and we depend upon God's grace to accomplish what He's given us to accomplish. But we do apply the means of grace and we seek to do things God's way. What could have been missing in that home? Perhaps some of the fruit of the Spirit was missing on occasion. Maybe the spirit of the Beatitudes was missing the poor in spirit and the meek and hungry and thirsting after God. Maybe the spirit of 1 Corinthians 13, agape love, was not shown in that home on a daily basis. We don't know everything in a hypothetical situation, but you see there's more to it than being associated with a good church. Membership in a church or some Christian organization essentially has little to do with Christian character. Because you can see people who have been associated with good churches and came out with something different from that. Well, where does it come from? A lot of people go to church and they don't really buy into what's being taught there. If you want godly character, that comes from the Holy Spirit. And it usually is developed in the home. You know, typically we live the way parents live at home. If we learn to worship God at home, then we probably worship God in our home later on. So we might uh, take a look at what we're doing and make sure that what we're doing is in accordance with God's way as well as what He tells us to do.
the how we're doing it. Now, I'm not talking about homeschooling. That might be a good idea, but I'm talking about home education. <clears throat> Everybody is in home education. Some people do homeschooling. But in that home education, we want young people to see the spirit and attitude of Christ. We want them to see asking forgiveness. We want to be the image of Jesus the Messiah. But sometimes we, like the Ephraimites, are not satisfied with where God has placed us. We may want a larger sphere of service. We may want to go where people would appreciate us a little better. We might even want to settle down into the limelight for a few years, maybe 25. And so we're not satisfied. Now, if that's, and young people might want to go to a home where there's a different program with different principles and uh, get free from whatever it is they don't like. But be careful, before you bolt, Joshua gives us some things to think about. And in our last section, let's take a look at the pattern of priorities. Joshua was a realist. You know what that is? He's going to tell you like it is. His reply to the Ephraimites was simple. Get out there and chop down the trees. You can't see the forest for the trees. And then drive out the Canaanites. You have plenty of land right where you are. You've just got to utilize what you have been given. Now trees could refer to clutter in your life or in your home. Get rid of all the clutter in your life. Order your priorities and things may go better. Now trees are a good thing, especially in Texas. I learned that when we moved here. And trees all over the place where I came from, but out here a tree was precious. Trees are a good thing unless you need that land for fields, if you need it for grazing pasture, if you need it for an orchard, for your fruit trees, and then you've got to clear some of the trees out of the way so that you can have what God intends for you to have. And then you've got to drive out the Canaanites. Now the Canaanites, if trees represent clutter, the Canaanites might represent corruption because you remember they were the enemy and we talked about the giants, we talked about hypocrisy, pride, lust, ungratefulness, those things. They were the enemy, they are our enemy, just like the Canaanites were the enemy of those Israelites. So we get rid of the clutter and then we get rid of the corruption, any little sin that might be hanging on there. Now, how well? Now, it looks like we're reading in a good bit into the Ephraimites and what they were thinking and how it turned out, but how well do you think they did over the years with what we're talking about, with rearing a generation who would follow the Lord and obey His commands? Well, they have a testimony a little later in the Bible, and it's Psalm 78, verse 9. The sons of Ephraim were archers equipped with bows, Yet they turned back in the day of battle. They did not keep the covenant of God and refused to walk in His law. And they forgot His deeds and His miracles that He had shown them. That's a sad commentary for an elite tribe. We wouldn't want to say later on, next generation, oh yeah, I was a member of such and such church, but you know, somehow we just didn't pass it on at the house. It's passing on at the church, but it's got to be passed on at the house. 
Maybe you're a young person and you want to move on to bigger and better places in life. Nothing wrong with that, but make sure you're tapping into God's grace where you are before you go. Because here's what you will find out. You can move to the plains where there is not a tree in sight. But when you get there, there'll be some Canaanites waiting on you at your new address. And you'll look around and there'll be some little saplings sprouting up to kind of make things complicated. And first thing you know, it has a tendency to be back like it was where you left. Except the problem is then is in your own heart. You couldn't blame mom or dad. So be sure that you get things right. Here is Alan Redpath. We've been following his little book, Victorious Christian Living. And he says to young people, you can strain at the leash just as long as you like, but God's Spirit will hold you back and focus the searchlight of the Word on your life. He'll keep you where you are until you have occupied and lived to capacity just there. And until in the place in which you're serving, in the lot that He has given you, up to the capacity of your heart for Christ, the enemy has been vanquished. That's pretty good advice. Make the most of all you've been given right where you are. Now, perhaps you're here this morning, and in your heart, you sincerely want to expand your territory. You want to increase your influence for the Lord. You want to do bigger and better things for the sake of His kingdom. Well, if that's the case, you're going to need some things. You're going to need power. You're going to need more grace. You're going to need more love. And you're going to need the fruit of the Spirit in increasing amounts. How do you get that? Trust and obey with what you have today. Faith and obedience determine the measure of the Holy Spirit's work in our hearts. Now we've learned from the parable of the talents that if you're faithful in what you have, you will be given more. And we close with this verse in James that says, God gives more grace. James 4, 6. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Now, how would we translate that into what we're speaking about this morning? I would say, humble yourself. We don't want to be those who are too proud of our connections or our associations, whatever they might be. Humble yourself, submit to God, utilize what you've been given to the fullest. Ask God how to do that. Press on to bigger and better things for the kingdom of God as He takes your disadvantage and turns it into a blessing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have promised us power, resurrection power. You've promised us your grace. You've promised us uh, your love that is shed upon us so that we may be a channel of that love to others. And you've promised us as we trust in you, as we obey you, and as we walk in the Spirit, that we can develop the fruit of the Spirit in our lives as you work in and through us. 
We recognize, Lord, that in our flesh, the old nature, lies no good thing. But we thank you that it is possible to turn from those things of the old nature and live a holy life. We can't do it perfectly, but we have a remedy when we stumble and fall. Lord, I would pray that you would be with those present this morning who are maybe wondering about uh, a decision to make, who are maybe looking back to see the way things have been done, and maybe contrasting that with what should have been done. I pray that we might remember the advice of the Apostle Paul that we would forget what lies behind and press on toward the mark for the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Thank you for forgiveness. Thank you that when we get off the straight and narrow path, you will help us to get back on. And thank you, Lord, for your grace that carries us when we don't even feel like making the journey. We ask now that you would guide our thoughts and our prayers as we would seek to remember those things about which we need to pray this morning. And we pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.